Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Before we get started today, I've got a little disclaimer for you. As I mentioned in last week's follow-up, I had to jam this episode out so that I could go watch my daughter play in her state semifinal game on Friday. So, I'm recording this right now. It's 1.30 in the morning on Thursday, or actually Friday. And I'm still suffering from a little bit of laryngitis from all the screaming I did at her game on Tuesday. So, I'm just telling you that to tell you this. My voice is not what it usually is, and I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to get through this whole episode without completely losing it. So wish me luck, and here we go. Last week, when I was researching for episode 18, I came across a handwritten note in the DA file. A note that I hadn't noticed before. The note led me to begin cross-referencing the DA's file with the Houston Police Department file. Throughout that process, I found the answers to some of our nagging questions, which is great, but I also came across new information that has me wondering what the hell is going on. This is Season 10, Episode 19, A Can of Worms. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. This is one of those episodes where you might want to have a notebook handy. I'm going to give you a lot of information. Some of it surprising and some of it just fills in some gaps for us. And it's definitely a hodgepodge of topics. Not everything connects to each other. Prior to this week, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time studying the DA's file. The reason being that by the time I received it, I already had all the crime scene photos, the trial exhibits, and the HPD file. 
The DA's file is over 600 pages long and appears to just mirror the documents that we already have. In the DA file, every crime scene photo has its own page, but with poorer resolution than the copies that I already have. And the entire police file is contained inside, and probably a quarter of the pages of the entire file are fully redacted. I suspect that most of that is the DA's work product. So it seemed like kind of a wasted effort to reread the entire police file when I have a cleaner copy of it. But early last week, I was scrolling through the DA file looking for something, and I came across a handwritten note. And it drew my attention because there are no handwritten notes contained in the police file at all. My hope was that the page contained some of the detective's notes, but that's not what it was at all. It was a note written to police by one of the leasing agents, Janine Smith. Janine is someone who was briefly mentioned in the police report, in Pam Wiley's statement, and also in the report about June Sage's statement. But we have no record of the police ever actually interviewing her other than this note which was not included in the police case file. And what's also interesting and is worth noting is that this is actually the only witness statement in this entire case file that was actually written by the witness. In every other instance, we either have a report written by a detective about a conversation or a statement that they received from a witness, or we have an air quotes written statement that was actually typed up by the officer, but not this one. This one was actually written, handwritten by Janine Smith. And the note breaks down the ongoing issues between Eva and Catalina. The first paragraph reads, quote, On the morning of October 28th, Miss Catalina Palomino entered the leasing office to discuss the heavy traffic in and out of apartment number 58 over this past weekend. This was about 10 a.m. An hour later, at approximately 11 a.m., I went to speak with number 58, Eva Mondragon. She was home and we discussed the complaint. She insisted this behavior would cease immediately. So this is the day before the murder. In further digging through the DA's file, I discovered that Eva was actually already in a little bit of hot water with the leasing office. She had been served a notice to vacate at least three times in the months leading up to this for not paying her rent on time. Most recently, on the 7th of October, her $405 rent was due on the 1st, and on the 7th, she hadn't yet paid it. Now, presumably, she did catch herself up prior to the 28th because I don't see any further documentation indicating that any further action had been taken. She was also served notices to vacate in July and also in August. The complaint part of this note isn't really new information. We already knew, because of Keith Truesdale's testimony, that Eva had been warned about the complaint just the day before the murder. But the next paragraph is new information. Quote, During the early hours of the morning of October 29th, our maintenance tech, Keith, called the police to report the residents in number 58 were having a party in the parking area around number 58. And this is sort of what I mean by opening up a whole new can of worms. So what the hell? Eva and Jennifer both say in their statements that they were inside pretty much the entire evening. Definitely by 11 p.m., Eva is on the couch and Jennifer's in bed. The two of them, confirmed by Katie and Youngster, say that by 1 a.m., the boys had returned and went back into the bedroom with Jennifer. But according to this note, quote, the residents in number 58 
were outside in the parking lot having a party in the early morning hours of the morning. And it was Keith Truesdale who called the police. At trial, Keith, who was 20 years old at the time, testified that he lived in the next building over from Eva. So I don't know, it kind of sounds like the alleged party must have woke him up. But this report is hearsay. It's Janine stating what Keith told her. So I jumped back into Keith's police statement to see if he mentions the call to police. And nope, nothing. Not a word about this incident in the police file. This could be very important. We could possibly have an entirely new group of suspects here. How early in the morning was it? Was it 1 a.m.? 6 a.m.? And how many people were there? These are important questions, so my next step was to file an open records request with the HPD to see if we can't get some more information. I submitted the request last week, and I haven't heard back yet. But I went ahead and included in the request any and all calls to service to the Green Arbor Apartments on the day before, the day of, and the day after the murder. Hopefully, I'll get the production from that request soon. HPD's been pretty good about getting me documents in a timely manner. In the meantime, I went searching for more information in the case file. Since Keith Truesdale called in the complaint, I went right to his written statement. And there it was, in black and white, Keith explaining the call to the police. And my first thought, and probably the question you're asking right now, was, how the hell did I miss that? It's right there in his statement. But then I realized the problem. I was still looking in the DA's file, not the police file. So this is the weirdest thing. In the police file, Truesdale's statement has a paragraph that ends with, quote, I then dialed 911 again and let the paramedic talk to the dispatcher. At this point, we all exited the apartment. And the statement ends there. The next line is about Swainson continuing his investigation. But in the copy of the same statement that's in the DA's file, there's another paragraph typed at the end of the statement. And it reads, quote, Note. Janine Smith told me that just yesterday the same elderly lady, which was found stabbed to death, had just came into the office and told her that she was scared due to the excessive amount of traffic which was coming from apartment number 58. On this same date, October 28, 1996, I called the police to report a large group of black males which were trespassing on the property outside of apartment number 58. But the police did not arrive. So according to Janine, Keith called the police in the early morning hours of the 29th because the residents in Eva's apartment were having a party in the parking lot. But in Keith's own words, or at least in the words that Swainson typed up for him and he signed, Keith says that he made the call on the 28th, which I suppose could have technically been 1 or 2 a.m. on the 29th, depending on how accurate Keith is trying to be. And in his statement, he was calling to report a group of black males who were trespassing on the apartment grounds. Now, Keith knows Eva. He knows who she is. And since he's saying that the black males were trespassing, I'm assuming that he has a pretty good idea of who belongs at the complex and who doesn't. So if neither Eva or Jennifer were outside with this group of black males, then who were these guys? What were they doing in the alleyway in front of Eva's apartment? And man, do I really wish we knew what time this happened. Hopefully we'll get some of those answers with my open records request. But unfortunately, that's a big hope, considering the fact that, according to Keith, the police never showed up. 
Now let's get back into the rest of Janine's note. The next paragraph lays out her version of events the morning that Eva came in to get help. Quote, On October 29th, at approximately 10.30 a.m., the resident in number 58 came bursting into the leasing office, insisting that she heard, quote, help, help, coming from number 57. She heard banging and screams. It was shortly after that that myself, Pam, Keith, and Lavana found number 57 patio door open and number 57 to be deceased in her apartment from obvious stab wounds and a blow to the head. Points of reference here. First of all, she says Eva came in at 10.30, which we know for sure is later than it actually happened. We seem to at least all agree on the fact that the call to the police happened at 9.42. So Eva definitely didn't come in at 10.30. And speaking of the call to the police, what we also get here is a pretty clear explanation that Lavana, Pam, and Janine all went straight to the apartment, which sounds like no one was left behind to actually call 911. So likely Keith's call to 911 from inside the apartment was probably the first call. Next, we have the fact that she says that Eva came in saying that Catalina was screaming, help, help, and that she heard banging and screaming. And again, not a word about any possible intruder or any danger inside. Now let's move on to the next paragraph. Soon after this incident, we spoke with apartment number 59, June Sage, who also informed us of the heavy traffic and details of the incident in number 57. As a quick cross-reference, in the police report about June, it does say that she was being tended to by Janine. So Janine was there with June. And on that note, I want to make a quick correction. Several episodes back, I was pointing out that in every witness report that was created by Swainson, we find the short girl with the black shirt and the two-toned hair description. But in that episode, I kind of backed off that because I thought that it was actually Peekert who had spoke with June Sage. So it wasn't all Swainson who wrote the exact same description for every witness. But now I need to correct my correction. June's statement is part of Swainson's report. In the report, he says that Peekert informed him that he should go talk to June. So my first statement was, in fact, accurate. In every statement where we see Jennifer described in this exact way, they were all typed up by Roy Swainson. And they were all typed up after Jen's arrest. And I want to reiterate this one more time. According to Jen, she was never wearing a black t-shirt. And no black t-shirt was ever recovered. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Before I continue with the final portion of Janine's letter, I want to expand just a bit on the black shirt dilemma. As I said, Jen never says that she was wearing a black t-shirt. In her confession, where she's admitting guilt, she still says that she was wearing a white t-shirt. She also says in the confession that she changed clothes after the murder and that her white shirt is still in Eva's apartment. Now, someone's going to have to make a hell of an argument to me if they want to convince me that while confessing to being involved in a murder, Jennifer for some reason decides to lie about the color of the shirt that she was wearing. It's just absurd. And again, she informs Alan that if he goes to Eva's apartment, he'll find the white t-shirt that she was wearing. And in my examination of the DA's file, I actually found the consent to search that Eva signed. She gave Swainson permission to enter her apartment at 1.33 p.m. on the day of the murder, before she and Jen went to the station to give their first written statements. And Eva says that Alan and Swainson did search her apartment both then and then again later that night. And that's also noted in Swainson's report on Eva's oral interview. And there, after he documents his chat with Jennifer, Swainson types in a note at the bottom of the page. It says, quote, Jen was wearing a black t-shirt and blue jeans. Now, I don't know if Jen was actually wearing a black t-shirt at that point. If she was, then the idea of Jen changing clothes after the murder is sort of out of the question, isn't it? But in either case, this really complicates things for Swainson. I believe that based on what was presented at trial, the state's theory is that Jen changed her clothes after the murder. But Swainson says that she was wearing a black t-shirt hours later when he interviewed her. And in every witness report that he types up, from people who saw Jen before the murder, she was also wearing a black t-shirt. Again, according to her confession, she was wearing a white t-shirt while she was inside the apartment during the murder. And if you believe that she's guilty, that would mean that her confession is the truth, right? That's really the only evidence against her. So if you think she's guilty, you got to believe her confession. But you think that she lied about what she was wearing in her true confession. So think about that for a minute. And while you're pondering it, let me throw an even bigger monkey wrench into the shirt controversy. At trial, Eva testifies that Jennifer changed shirts that morning. She says that there was a white t-shirt and a black t-shirt but she can't remember if she was wearing the white shirt when she left in the morning and then changed into the black one after the murder, or if it was the other way around. But let's look at both scenarios. If she was wearing the white t-shirt before and during the murder, then she would have changed into the black shirt, right? Which fits Swainson's report, where he notes that Jennifer was wearing a black t-shirt while he was talking to her after the murder. But... That would mean that neither June Sage or Housen, Youngster or Zaragoza Garza saw Jennifer wearing a black t-shirt. Because in all of his reports about their statements, they all say Jen was wearing the black shirt before the murder. And now let's flip it around. Let's say that she was wearing the black shirt before and during the murder. And that's why all these witnesses get her description exactly right, because that's what she was wearing. But now, somehow, miraculously, all of the witness nailed it and got the color of the shirt right, along with the highlighted hair. But we still have a problem. Because Eva said that she changed into the white shirt in this scenario after the murder. And that's what she would have been wearing when Swainson interviewed her, when he wrote that she was wearing a black t-shirt. 
any way you shake it, Swainson is full of shit. This is what I think happened. I think Jen was wearing a white t-shirt that morning just like she said. I think that she changed sometime after the murder, and she was wearing a black t-shirt when Swainson interviewed her. He didn't know that she had changed, and he assumed that she had been wearing the black t-shirt all morning. So, to help strengthen his case, you know, the ends justify the means, he makes some adjustments to the witness statements, making it appear that all of the witnesses were consistent in seeing Jennifer. Then, of course, he can't have any of those witnesses testify at trial because they're bound to fuck it up because that's not what they actually said and it's not what they actually saw. We know for a fact that Mr. Garza saw a lighter-skinned black woman in her 20s wearing a collared shirt. And so who the hell knows what June Sage actually saw or what she said that she saw? And this ought to be opening up some even bigger questions for you. To me, this is telling us that one way or another, Swainson manipulated this evidence to get this conviction. And if he's willing to do this, how can we believe a word this man says? Janine's letter contains one more paragraph. She signed and dated the written statement after the parts that I've already read to you. Then it seems like she's clarifying here in her last paragraph. In the first segment, Janine is saying that Catalina came in and complained on Monday about the traffic over the weekend, which presumably was why Jen was also staying in Eva's apartment and could have been part of the problem. But Janine wants the investigators to know that this wasn't the first complaint. From the letter, quote, Prior to October 28th, Catalina had come in and told me that her and her neighbor June Sage in 59 were very worried and scared of all the heavy traffic and noise that went on all hours of day and night. She had come in several times, but did not give me an apartment number until October 28th. She finally told me because she was so scared. After this follow-up, Janine signs and dates the page again. I've read from some folks who have access to this entire case file that this could be an explanation for why Jen might have been knocking on June's door before Catalina's. Because June and Catalina were both complaining. So maybe the attack was going to be on both of them or one or the other of them. And it didn't matter which one. It's also interesting how just with this little bit of information, all of the sudden we're willing to accept that this was a personal cause homicide when it looks like maybe it points towards Jen. But the problem is that you have to read the entire document and look at what it actually says. Prior to the morning before the murder, Catalina, not June, had gone in on multiple occasions to voice her concerns. And yes, she says that June is scared too, but she never gives Janine the apartment number where the noise was coming from. The note says that the 28th was the first time that she actually confronted Eva about the complaints, and it does not say anything about telling Eva anything about June. In fact, the note says that June first told Janine that the traffic was bothering her as well after the murder. Now, another theory that I've had posed to me is that Jen was the one responsible for all the traffic. And yes, she was staying with Eva, or at least we think she was, during the weekend that's addressed in the recent complaint. But Janine says that Catalina was in to complain multiple times before that. She just never gave the apartment number because she was scared. And don't forget that through her statements and at trial, Eva herself tries to pin all the heavy traffic on Jennifer, but then she also slips up and says that when Jen moved in, she told Jennifer that she couldn't have a lot of traffic because she'd been getting complaints about the noise, 
meaning it was happening before Jen moved in. And for what it's worth, not for nothing, I also found a list of Catalina's written maintenance requests in the DA's file. And in May of that year, Catalina complained to the office that cigarette smoke was coming into her apartment from Eva's. Now, smoking was allowed in the apartment, so Eva wasn't doing anything wrong, so this was just entered as a maintenance issue. Eva was told to get a charcoal filter for her apartment to help reduce the smell. Like I said, doesn't mean anything. I just want to throw it out there because it's more information, and it at least establishes some kind of pattern that this is at least the second time that Eva's been made aware that Catalina living below her had been complaining about her. Moving on, I'm going to be dropping several little nuggets of info that I found in the DA's file. And this would be the part where a notebook might be handy. There's nothing groundbreaking here, but important info nonetheless. I'll be listing these out kind of fast and furious. There's not a whole lot of analysis to be done here. These are just some new facts that are filling in some gaps. So, a lot of people have been asking about when Eva moved in, when Catalina moved in, and when the Jeffleys moved into Green Arbor. The lease documents are all in the file. So here's the breakdown. Catalina moved into Unit 57 on February 16th of 96. Eva was next up when she moved into Apartment 58 on March 5th, just a few weeks later. And then the Jeffleys. They moved into Unit 135 on July 23rd. We've also had a lot of questions about Catalina's finances. Many of you have been wondering if she had some big nest egg somewhere. The answer is found in her application for the apartments other than the fact that her nephew Juan told us that she didn't have any money. But the answer appears to be, no, she did not have a big nest egg somewhere. At the time when Catalina applied to move into Green Arbor, her only source of income was Social Security. Her total annual income in 1996 was $7,524 per year. That's a whopping total of $627 a month. Now, luckily, the apartment was government-subsidized, so her rent payment was only $169 a month, but still, that's some tight living. The Jeffleys put in their notice to move out on January 9th of 1997. It was a 30-day notice to move out on February 8th. Jackie wrote a nice letter laced with a bit of sarcasm, and it's worth hearing. Quote, This is a 30-day notice that the Jeffley family will be vacating the premises within 30 days. The reason for this move is due to the size of the family increased by four people and a larger living facility is needed to accommodate this increase. Also, you'll be better able to gain control of the roach problem in the unit. We want to take this moment to thank you for accommodating us with a unit. Thank you, Jackie Jeffley. Moving on, we learned that Jennifer's attorney filed several motions, trying to get the state to produce to him any and all evidence, witness statements, grand jury testimonies, and lab results. He also filed motions requesting funding for an investigator. Unfortunately, there's no indication if any of these motions were granted or denied. However, we know from the trial that Coyne, in fact, did not have all the witness statements, and he doesn't seem to have been able to secure an investigator. We also learn from the file that House and Ram was actually subpoenaed by the state to testify at trial, although they ended up not using him. Next up, there's a large section of the file that's also contained in the police file, but we haven't discussed it yet. Verbitsky conducted the crime scene investigation, and we covered his trial testimony and his very short written report. 
but we haven't yet covered Detective Allen's scene summary. His summary is actually much more in-depth than Verbitsky's and answers a lot of our lingering questions. I'll have the entire summary posted on the website, but for now I'm going to briefly hit the highlights and just lay out the important things that we don't already know. Here's my first big problem with the crime scene investigation. Let me read to you what Alan writes about the outside of the building. Quote, The shrubs appear to have been recently trimmed. The flower beds appear wet. There are footprints noted in the flower bed around the patio. There are footprints in the dirt around the patio, and we don't have a single picture of them. Let me repeat that. Detective Allen noted footprints in the dirt around the patio that was the point of entry to a murder, and he and Verbitsky either didn't take photos of them, or if they did, they didn't include them in the case file. I mean, what the hell? Depending on the detail, they may have actually been able to tell the make and model of the shoes. And even without that much detail, they could throw a ruler down and at least determine the size of the shoes. And they didn't take a plaster cast or even a damn picture of the prints. It's unbelievable. This next bit is, well, it's just interesting. Apparently, Catalina had a framed letter to her from the Pope on her entertainment center. Alan actually goes into great detail talking about all the knickknacks like this on the end table, the entertainment center, everywhere around the room. However, he fails to mention the fake flowers and the green foam that are on the floor behind the table. And then from here, he breaks down the scene room by room. In the patio area section, he mentions the footprint again. He says that there is a, quote, faint footprint. It's outside the patio in the corner where it meets the apartment. And again, no photo. And I'm sorry, even if it's faint, you put a damn ruler next to it and take a picture. But apparently, he didn't think that was necessary, even though he referred to it as evidence. Quote, There appeared to be evidence in the dirt. Still in the living room, Alan notes that there are three pieces of ceramic in the center of the living room floor. I give up, and I think this has to explain the weird drinking glasses in the living room. Both Alan and Verbitsky testified that nothing was moved or disturbed before they took the photos and filmed the video. But neither of them ever mentioned the glasses. But they do both mention the shards of ceramic. And Alan says very specifically that there were three shards and they were in the middle of the room. So I have to believe at this point that they put the glasses over the shards to protect them and to keep anyone from stepping on them. And they just did a shitty job of documenting it. Next, Alan moves on to the dining area, and he lists out all the contents of the two purses that were found on the table. So even though in his trial testimony he wasn't sure if he looked in the purses, it turns out that he did. The black purse contained a small black pouch with a blue rosary, miscellaneous papers, a small red silk bag, a black checkbook, a small green bag listed as a religious article, another pad of checks, a, quote, drawn-on Texaco-Houston credit union. I'm not sure what that means, but it seems like maybe a card with an account number on it. There was also a lipstick tube, mirror attached, assorted pens, and peppermint candy. The other purse was blue and contained miscellaneous tissue, a compact mirror, 
a badge-type button, a bottle of lotion, a black leather rosary pouch, and peppermint candy. Now we go into the kitchen and we get several of our questions answered. Some big questions we've had for a long time. First of all, the medications. We all want to know what types of meds were on the counter. Well, it looks like Catalina just has some digestive issues. There was a pack of Tums on the counter, along with some iron supplements. The white prescription bottle was Zantac, which is a medication for acid reflux. And the lid was off that bottle. The brown prescription bottle contained Levbid, another med to help with digestive problems. And the clear brown prescription bottle contained Centrum Vitamins. And Catalina also had a canister of Citrusel, which is a fiber therapy, kind of like Metamucil, sitting on the counter. And that's it for the meds. Nothing sexy, no opioids, no narcotics, just some heartburn pills and some Tums. However, I think that we do get kind of a pretty good idea here of exactly what Catalina might have been doing when the attack began. So all four of her meds are out on the counter, and some of the lids are open. She also has on the counter one of those days-of-the-week pill organizer things. The report said that in the organizer, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday were empty, and Wednesday through Saturday all had four pills in each of them. Now, my first thought was she must have already taken her Tuesday meds before the murder, and that's why that day's empty. But remember, the ME stated that there were no pills in her stomach. And if her habit is to keep the pills in the organizer, then why did she have all those bottles out and open? I think there's a pretty good chance that she might have been in the middle of organizing those pills when the attack began. Alan does note the contents of the kitchen trash can here. The can contained one Snickers candy bag and tissue. And that's it. But also in the kitchen, on the counter near the meds, was a silver box containing jewelry. Inside the box were eight rings and three pairs of earrings. Now, there was another jewelry box located in the bedroom, and Alan notes that that jewelry that was in that box was costume jewelry, or fake jewelry if you don't know what costume jewelry is. But the jewelry that was in the small silver box on the kitchen counter is just referred to as jewelry which would be an interesting thing to leave behind if this were actually a robbery gone wrong. That's pretty much it as far as new information found in the DA file. Like I said, nothing of great importance, but definitely some answers to a lot of our questions. So now I think we're all feeling pretty good, right? Yep, I was too. Until I found the next page that I need to share with you. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.
Okay. Just when I thought things were becoming clearer, I find something that throws a kink into our entire timeline again. It looks like on September 9th of 1997, shortly before the trial, the DA's office requested a copy of the EMS report. From the looks of the file, the entire report is redacted. The only thing that's viewable from the report is an EMS unit response profile, which is basically a time log. The next several pages after that are redacted from the file. But the response profile lists some very important times. They're about to ruin your Father's Day. And not because we need the times to be anything in particular. We just need to know when they were called. The reason that it might ruin your day is because, once again, the times don't make sense. The unit response profile lists the incident time as 9.44 a.m., meaning that's when 911 was called at 9.44. It says EMS were dispatched at 9.46 a.m., and they arrived at the scene at 9.49 a.m. The report appears to be accurate. It lists the two responding medics as Trenton Roach and David Childers. And those are the same two names that we see in other places in the police report. So that's not the problem. I think the report is accurate, but this is the problem. The first documented call to 911 that we have is when Keith Truesdale calls from inside the apartment. He says that he told the dispatcher that they need an ambulance for an unconscious woman. He also says that he believed that she had just fallen and hit her head at that point. Then, after the medics get there, they assess Catalina and they tell him that they need to call the police because it looks like a homicide. He then calls 911 again and the dispatcher talks to the medic. But in the police report, it says that Officer Peekert was dispatched to a DOA, a dead on arrival, at 9.44 a.m. from a 9.42 call. So that would mean that he was dispatched to a DOA two minutes before EMS was dispatched to what was listed as an unknown situation on their report. And there are a few problems with that. For starters, no one knew Catalina was dead when the first call was made. Remember, Pam told Keith that she thought she felt a pulse. And Keith didn't report that she was dead when he called 911. He just said that she was unconscious. So why is Peekert responding to a DOA two minutes before that? And secondly, why did the dispatcher want to talk to the medics during the second call at all? From my experience, if the police were already on their way, what I would have expected is for the dispatcher to tell Keith when he told him to send police that they're already on the way. And besides that, I would have to believe that the medics would know if the police were already on the way. Admittedly, I wasn't working on a fire engine in 1996, but I was in 2001, which wasn't that much later. And we always knew if the police were responding to the same call. We not only had their frequency programmed into our radios in the rig, but also the dispatcher would tell us when she dispatched us that the police are also en route. And there's a number of reasons for that. Not in the least is the fact that when you have multiple emergency vehicles going to the same place that are running lights and sirens or are going through stop signs and stoplights, it's a good idea to know that you're not the only one on the way. So anyway, this is just a big confusing mess. 
As confusing as these times are, they do actually help a little. I trust the EMS times. This is an actual dispatch log. It was printed out a year later, but I mean, it looks legit as though it was printed out out of their system computer. It's not hearsay like the ME's report saying what another report says. I think that we can be fairly certain that Keith called 911 at 9.44 a.m., which would mean that Eva likely left the scene to run to the office sometime around 9.35 a.m. Now, yes, we definitely do have a bit of a conflict with the police dispatch times, but in all reality, those times are just as much hearsay as the ME report. We don't have a dispatch log for Peekert's response. What we have is Alan typing into his report the times that Peekert told him. And maybe somehow they're accurate. I don't see how, but who knows. And really, it just doesn't actually matter all that much. All we've been trying to do is figure out the actual window of opportunity, and I think that we have that with this new EMS log. We know that the call to EMS went to dispatch at 9.44 a.m. If that's when Keith called, we can back that up and say that, yes, like I said before, Eva likely ran to the office around 9.35, and that now is the outer limit of our window of opportunity, not 9.05, but rather 9.35. And that, my friends, is all she wrote for this week. I hope that all of you dads out there are having a great Father's Day. I know I'm looking forward to some family time myself. And tomorrow, as always, it's right back to the grind. I'm really looking forward to hearing all of your thoughts and theories on this week's follow-up. Let's put our heads together figure this thing out. and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. 
And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.